Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ tissue and eye donation and transplantation. You can always find us friends at thegiftedlife.org. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Joey Boudreaux. And I'm Nyla Schwab. Coming up on episode 202 of The Gifted Life. Artificial intelligence in the transplant world. Let's talk about it. And are you getting tired of making decisions? Yes. I know. (laughs) Me too. So listen in because we're going to talk about why that might be happening. All that and more right here on The Gifted Life. Stay tuned. Here on the Gifted Life Podcast, we are excited to learn from our new guest and our new friend today. We have Dr. Tate Stravanius. Welcome. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me today. Really delighted to be here and look forward to this event and the conversation. Yes, thank you so much. We know that you're the Senior Vice President over Medical Affairs and Clinical Operations at CareDx. Can you start us off by telling us what CareDx was created to do? What it's all about. CareDx is a company that specializes in uh, uh, genomic solutions applied to the transplant journey. We started out with a solution called Allomap, which uh, predicted rejection in heart transplants and made it possible for heart transplant patients to not keep getting biopsies to diagnose rejection. 20 years later, that evolved into a company that. Uh, services, kidney transplant recipients, heart transplant recipients, lung, liver uh, 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 transplant recipients uh, to help diagnose rejection early before there's deterioration of that uh, function. Our principal product is called AlloSure, which uses uh, donor-derived cell-free DNA. Uh, In other words, uh, uh, when donor recipients have separate genomes, uh, their, their genetic material is different, and those differences can be exploited uh, by using complex algorithms to differentiate in a blood sample how much of DNA is coming after injury from the recipient and from the uh, donor. And that can be used as a signal to see if the transplant organ is injured or not. And the most important injury that they try to get to is rejection of the transplant organ. The kidney especially uh, has the ability to compensate for loss of tissue. And so you may not see a change in kidney function using routine measures such as creatinine or GFR. Uh, And it may mask ongoing injury in the kidney the compensatory process. But as what happens when we uh, have a marker like Alishore is that that marker's value goes up, the measurement goes up before there's deterioration of the kidney function and it's not subject to those compensatory mechanisms. So you can get to the kidney uh, and perform a biopsy uh, and treat the rejection before there's deterioration and function and irreversible loss of kidney tissue. And this uh, so we have cutoff values that are uh, that are correlated with increasing severities of rejection and especially the most severe forms of rejection such as uh, antibody mediated rejection. And 
this gave us the perfect platform for us to see if we could incorporate other variables that are collected in the context of clinical care uh, into the prediction of whether uh, uh, a patient person has rejection and therefore allow that kidney to be receiving the attention that it needs to receive from the caregivers. So basically, uh, you know, something that historically, and just so I can get it right in my head, because uh, of course I'm a clinician, but I, I, I don't do artificial intelligence, and I certainly don't analyze data on the level that you guys do. So just so I can understand. So, so before this, basically you have your basic kidney function, your creatinine level, urine output, make sure the patient's still putting out the right amount of urine. And, and, and so you would see... Uh, without your tool, you would see the uh, the evidence only after damage is occurring. Whereas what you guys are able to do is is crunch all the data using artificial intelligence and being able to have this predictive tool to be able to analyze the kidney, the potential kidney failure before it happens, so that you can then treat it before any damage has occurred. Is that kind of what I'm? Am I on the right? path? You're, you're absolutely on the right path here. So, uh, and you've actually stated it a lot better than I would have because I tend to get very technical. The The main thing here is that one of the facts that you alluded to is that when a person is making a decision in the clinic or at the bedside, they have to keep fairly a large number of variables in the mind. And we humans don't handle many variables together and weight them the right way and do it consistently all the time. But if machines do that with absolutely unflinching regularity, depending on how well you program them, you know, and the assumptions around those programs. Uh, so what we have done here is to take that clinical need, which is to know whether a patient has a rejection before there's deterioration of function of the transplanted kidney uh, using Alasure and also other variables such as changes in creatinine values or uh, filtration rate that may be subtle uh, rises in small in donor-specific antibody, which is the antibody response that the uh, recipient makes to the donor that there's an ongoing rejection. And a prior history of rejection, if the patient was rejected before, the more likely to reject again. And a clear prior kidney transplant. And also this protein in the urine that gives the equation as well. Putting all that in there allows us to get an estimate of whether uh, a person may have rejection given the value of the donor device of free DNA. And so kidney function can fluctuate for all kinds of reasons. Uh, donor device of free DNA usually goes up when there's ongoing injury. And we've traditionally used certain cutoff values uh, and say that it was about this, you have increasing chances of rejection. What we're finding out is that it's not, nature doesn't work in cutoffs. Nature works in a continuum. So we're finding out that there's so much power within the uh, continuous range of values that can be obtained on a measurement in, the, in an individual. Uh, and if you use all those values uh, it to make a prediction, you don't lose statistical power. The other thing that is important to note is that 
this concept that if you apply a diagnostic test to a pro to a patient that has or a population that has a higher uh, pre-test probability of having a diagnosis of interest. In other words, it's more likely that that person has that disease of interest or the condition of interest. And if you apply the test in that population, you're much more likely uh, to get the correct answer when you use a test and show that the person has disease. In other words, you boost up the positive, positive predictive value of the test. And we do that by applying the Alistair value in the context of somebody that has had a higher likelihood of rejection that has uh, because they've had a prior rejection or they have told the specific antibody or they have a change in the kidney function or they have told a specific antibody. And when you pull all that together, right, uh, these are five or six variables that need to come together invariantly. The doctor has to have the game on in, um, on every patient that they see throughout the day, right, and every day. And and you may lose some of that information because it's sitting in various parts of the electronic medical record. So what you do here in the simplest way is to use computing and data gathering and uh, its aggregation and an ability to guide some insight into using a, an algorithm, which is a specific uh, set of steps that are done in a prescribed manner, to gain the answer that you want. And together, these things act as a human agent or act as a surrogate or an assistant to the physician. And thus, you're making smart decisions or you're enabled to make smart decisions. And that is, in a sense, artificial intelligence. And that's what we're doing here. So we allow the physician to act on the kidney today in a smart way using the data, uh, all the data at their disposal in a timely manner. We also make it possible uh, to use data that were obtained in the first year post-transplant to make a prediction of whether the kidney will survive three, five, or what the probability of the kidney surviving at three, five, and seven years is. And we have leveraged techno technologies from our technology partner, Baristar Transplant Group and Organex Foundation, uh, who are uh, faculty members at the Hospital Necker in Paris. So, so basically, and again, so you're able to capture all the data with Allosure in a, in, at all, very timely, in a continuum, like a continuous manner, and and continue populating and crunching and analyzing as opposed to having uh, you know a, a, a provider a, a, a physician uh, looking at things at one point in time and then trying to find again I know because I, I, I work I work in the industry and I understand clinical databases how difficult it is to, to capture and gather, gather data to, so to be able to find it all and then put things together and say okay uh, you know I we need to we need to be concerned about this kidney, or we need to do something different for this kidney. So, for you guys with Alishore to be able to to have all the data continuously providing analysis, so that it's it's everything happens a lot more timely 
than uh, than it would have. That's that's basically that's it in a nutshell as well, right? So that's what I'm gathering. I'm just trying to make sure that I'm on the same wavelength here. Uh, absolutely, I think uh, you gathered it really well, and you're absolutely the right wavelength. So the here thing, the main main uh, message here is that a the data are sometimes artificially segmented in the cutoff values. Use all the data that you have. Uh, uh, use the power of all the data that you have. Number one. Number two, make sure that diverse data that are needed to come to a decision are incorporated into the model uh, so that you don't lose sight of any of the, those important pieces. The next is to be able to do that invariantly in every patient every time and not lose sight of it. Even more importantly, and we've not answered this completely yet, one of the things that happens to a patient is that it may not be the same doctor taking care of them each time. And we want the right decision to be made for that patient as we understand based on the data, each time a patient is seen, regardless of who that person sees, you know? And that's one more thing that uh, we absolutely are aiming to uh, be driving towards. And that needs to be studied, uh, you know, in the trigger in the future. So, can I ask a question? Sure. Okay. Okay, so um, I'm not clinical, so this is going to make it harder on you. And I'm going to see if I'm understanding. But so I work in the OPO world, so the organ procurement organization. I work with the families after donation has occurred. Sure. So I, you know, families are always checking on their, um, their loved one's gifts. And it sounds like, that what you're doing, what your organization is doing, is that y'all are protecting these precious gifts and that you are taking the human error out of treating these gifts so that these gifts continue to give and give and give the quality of life that when a family says yes to help someone else, that that's what they're saying yes to. Uh, What a beautiful way of putting it. Uh, I will say that that is our ultimate goal, they're taking that first step by providing the tools that allow us to act today uh, by making sure that we get to those rejections early and treat them well and early. Uh, They're also providing a tool to predict uh, what may be happening in the future so that we're able to have a conversation with the patient as to their prognosis and say, hey, things are going great. Please keep continuing to do what you're doing. Mm. Or say that things are not going so great, could we have a conversation about changing your treatment? Because uh, one of the things here is still when uh, patients, understandably because of that precious nature of the gift, uh, don't necessarily want to do something if they're not feeling bad, right? Mm -hmm. But the numbers then tell a different story. And it's possible to have that uh, conversation with the patient in in a much more uh, informed manner if that asymmetry of information between the doctor or the provider of care and the patient is reduced by both of them looking at the same data. My dream would be that the patient and the physician are looking at the same data together on the same screen as they make clinical decisions that impact the future of that wonderful precious gift, the transplanted organ that. and the donated organ is beautiful you know that your dream is to 
that it's happening and that these gifts, these precious gifts are continuing to give and that the doctor and the recipient one day may be looking at this together because you're right. I mean, I can't imagine the journey of being a recipient and understanding everything that's going on in my body and then having to relay that to the doctor and then having to have these conversations together about what's to come next. And so this this organization, this this um, company taking the guesswork out of of what's so critical at the time of um, of this relationship of patient and and physician. So this is really cool. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Strenovas. What's next? I, I remember reading on your website about AI kidney. I know we talked a lot about Alishore. Um, what's the difference in that? Like, what what? How are those two programs different? And and where do you see that next? The foundation of AI kidney for making a decision about the biopsy and uh, helping guide the clinician towards, uh, you know, which patient has a higher probability of rejection. We're not saying which patient needs a biopsy or not, but more, more in terms of which patient is more likely to have a rejection. That, the foundation for that is Alishia, which is the donor-derived cell-free DNA diagnostic test that we have for kidney, which is reimbursed by Medicare uh, in the United States. Uh, that uh, was a freestanding test, and now we are incorporating patient-level data and using all the values of Alishira uh, across its spectrum and the range of values to make uh, uh, a calculation as to what the uh, probability of rejection is in a particular uh, transplant patient to inform, to help inform the clinician in making decisions on how to take care of that patient. So that's acting in the present. So uh, there's freestanding Alishir as a test, which has which can be used, which is the way it's being used in most places. And then there's the uh, there's the added information that comes from adding all the other clinical variables uh, with the Alishir to gain that additional uh, uh, you know information that helps gain the clinician gain insight into what's going on in that kidney. The second part of that we've added on to it is to take our pre-existing, uh, you know, offering, which is called IBOC, uh, or the integrated box, that took uh, the kidney function at one year, the biopsy findings at one year, donor specific antibody at one year, and the uh, uh, and, uh, and protein of the urine at one year. Uh, to give us prognostic estimates of what would happen at three, five, and seven years after the transplant. Pulling those together brings together an ability to act in the clinic today and an ability to prognosticate or predict what happens to that kidney tomorrow and years later. And uh, that's our first offering here uh, around uh, kidney transplant and uh, we do plan to be, you know, expanding into other organs as well uh, without going into further detail. And uh, uh, certainly, given our experience in heart, uh, that's something that we may look at in the, in the future, you know. So are you guys kind of working with different uh, 
transplant centers across the country or are you guys focusing on certain areas or how are you spreading that obviously that much needed technological innovation? Great question. Uh, so we are uh, the the AI kidney product has been available uh, since September to all transplant centers in the United States and we uh, are it's available uh, across Cerner, EMR, uh, and to our transplant module called Otter. And it's also available to Epic customers through our module, which is called AI Track, uh, which allows us to uh, deploy these solutions within Epic EMR. Our dream is that this uh, would go, uh, uh, I would say, I would uh, rephrase that. Our, uh, intention is that the solution live inside the EMR so that it's accessible every time a patient, uh, a doctor wants to take care of a patient with a transplant who's had allergy testing. And that way the care is seamless and it's occurring uh, in an invariant manner that most people would consider ideal as opposed to freestanding modules across the uh, place, which may or may not be used. Because you know that a lot of the decision support within EMRs only gets used when it's clicked. Now, that's the ultimate goal. Uh, we do realize that uh, centers are at various uh, levels of maturity with regard to how well their EMRs are uh, you know, uh, deployed and handled and things like that. And we will absolutely need to uh, you know, think about intermediate solutions where we may uh, get, uh, allow the, these clinicians to use uh, uh, the functionality within these uh, of the AI kidney tool uh, within the limits of what they're able to do as a center, and we work with them on a center by center basis. Ultimately, our goal is that every patient have access to it. So we put in a lot of efforts to make sure that that access never goes away. So we don't want the uh, an infrastructure limitation at the level of the center to come in the way of getting a really useful tool uh, into the service of the patients with transplants. Fascinating. In the community, we always say, you never know what's going to happen tomorrow because there's very smart people like you, doctor, <laughs> that are working on these advancements. Just a smarter way of making better decisions in the transplant world. Uh, what a great practice. Um, I mean, I think we're all taking notes so that we can <laughs> move forward and do more research. Yes, I just wanted to say I hope that you keep dreaming because you are making life happen and we appreciate you for doing that. And then I think we were all doing research, caredx.com. Doc, I just wanted to kind of put out where they can go and, and see your face, uh, read up and learn about your team, and then learn about all the amazing things that you guys have in development to help in the transplant world. So we appreciate you taking the time to, to help us learn today. Well, thank you so much for having me here today. Uh, you folks are doing the, the greatest service uh, for mankind by helping that gift of life be perpetual. And for those that want to give to keep that hope alive for those that want to live. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back anytime here as you create more amazing things. (laughs) 
time to take a moment for mental health here on the Gifted Life Podcast. Yeah, and listening in to Dr. Strenovas and all the decisions he's got to make, this is a perfect episode <laughs> here to introduce decision fatigue. Yes. Oh, I thought about bringing that up while he was talking, but I thought, <laughs> no, I don't want to stop his rhythm. But, you know, it is like what he was talking about is, you know, like we are constantly making decisions. Right. And it sounds like this company is is taking the error out of all of the, the human errors that we make mm-hmm. in decision making. Um, there is such a thing called decision fatigue. And it just means I that, believe it. Mm-hmm. I do, too. You know, it's thought that we make 35,000 decisions a day from what you're going to wear wow. when you open the door to your refrigerator. What's I mean, for dinner? I, I don't like that question. <laughs> oh, and it's a decision that you have to make. Yes, and I mean, it's a tough one. It is. Every day. Okay. Focus and see, this is all decision making. <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, like we just wanted to talk about how, it, like, having to make these decisions can stress you out. It can emotionally fatigue you and um, it's draining. And so as the day goes on, it's thought, and they've done some research with it showing that um, I think it that that as you start your day, your decision making is stronger. But as you go throughout the day, it gets less and less. I agree. I'm just like, eh. Yeah. Whatever yeah. goes, goes. By the, by the end of the day, I'm trying to figure out the, the alphabet and where to put the A and the B and the C blocks of Blakely. And then you have to do homework at the end of the day. So many decisions. But, you know, when you think about um, with COVID coming in, that added more decisions. Because if you right. think about, like, doctors and nurses are frontline, mm-hmm. you know, staff, not only were they doing their job, but they're taking on the anxiety of other people. They were also having to make decisions. Do I wear a mask? I mean, things they didn't even know. And, and as we move forward, I think we we continue with these problems because, I mean, not really problems. A lot of good things have come out of COVID, but a lot of other things have not. We still continue moving forward with how are we going to do it different? Right. And it just... It complicates the the, the logistical uh, aspects of some of the decisions. Right. You know, before I, I can make a decision about something, whether it's deployment or whatever, but then when you add things like COVID pandemic or other issues, even weather... Like so many things can complicate and make the decision making process more difficult, which causes more de- decision fatigue. So it's like, yes. At yes. the end of the day, I'm like, oh, I just want to watch something mindless and not think. Thank you. That's why I scroll on Facebook. I'm like, that's probably a bad decision. (laughs) (laughs) But you do need a break. You do need to give your mind rest. So if you feel like you're getting tired or that, you know, you're getting agitated with people quicker than usual or you can't make decisions as quick as you used to. I mean, some of these things might be leading up to you're running into decision fatigue. So what are some things you can do about it? So, like, let's just talk about that for just a few minutes. But you can streamline your choices. So less choices about things, you can start deciding, you know what, I'm not, not going to have that decision to make. Um, you can plan ahead, which helps some of your decision making, like what are you going to wear tomorrow? You can go ahead and take care of that at night. Uh, you can also uh, try to delegate decisions. You know, if you try to micromanage a team, maybe letting your team members take on more responsibility. Uh, you might let your kids make some of the decisions, which empowers them. Um, you can even let your friends make the decision, like if you want uh, what restaurant do you want to go to? What do you want to eat? I'm not hungry. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. Whatever you want. Um, we flip it back and forth. I say, all right, what do you want? She says, well, you decide. I yeah. know you decide. And y- y'all <laughs> might both have decision fatigue. Yeah. So, yeah. so you want to also stop guessing yourself. Have you ever made a decision and then you go back and you just think, oh, On the maybe. important things, like some, it's like the outcome. It's like, 
what's for dinner? Like whatever I decide is going to be fine. But then like some decisions that may impact the children or something like uh, do you get the flu shot or, you know, different, just different things like so much you need to weigh. Yeah. So make those big decisions in the morning. Save the little ones for later. But once you make a decision, be happy about it. Just just go with Nothing it. Nothing you can do about it now. Yep. And then making daily routines. The more routines you have, the less you have to think about. And then one last thing is, if you feel like it's really becoming overwhelming, always seek help. Right. I like it. Maybe you have a topic you'd like us to cover here on the Gifted Life podcast. It's easy. Email us, info at thegiftedlife.org. In our question and answer segment today... I'm considering becoming a living donor. How do kidneys get matched if I don't know someone waiting? I love that they are thinking about it, that they're Mm -hmm. doing research, that they're asking questions. That's what we want you to do. Um, Joe, you want to fill them in on the answer? Yeah, well, I'll kind of go around it two different ways. One, if you are just becoming an altruistic kidney donor, meaning that you're, you're just donating out of the goodness of your heart to no one in particular, what happens is whichever transplant center you choose, they will then be able to match. Uh, they'll take what your blood your blood type. They'll take your your size because that all matters. And then they they'll do antigen testing, HLA uh, antigen testing for a lot more specific uh, testing. That way, less anti rejection medicine is given mm-hmm. for the the potential recipient. The more of those that you match up. Uh, but vice versa, if you uh, do know someone who uh, who needs a kidney and you want to donate to them and you and you don't match up, then there is still an answer for that as well. And that's through kidney pair donation, uh, where the, the gist is, is that uh, you will then be matched up with someone else who's paired with someone else and starts a chain. Uh, sometimes up to five, six, eight, ten people long. I love those stories. Yeah, and then it ends up coming back to uh, finally the person that you intended on originally donating to. So that person doesn't get your kidney directly, but indirectly still gets the benefits of your donate kidney donation. And we've actually talked about this in a few episodes. You can go back, guys, listening to uh, our episode one sixty nine. Uh, also 176 and the last one just a couple episodes back 196 where we had different versions of kidney pair donation spoken about. Wow. And, yeah, and maybe you want to learn more. Uh, lopa.org slash donation is one of the places where you can go or unos.org, U-N-O-S dot org. Um, or send us your questions here. Yeah, so if you, um, if you do have a question, let us know. You can call 504-648-3477. In every episode of The Gifted Life, we honor a hero. Today's hero is Elizabeth Gray. We learn about Elizabeth from her family. Lizzie was full of life. She loved with everything in her. She had the voice of an angel. Lizzie had the most beautiful smile and personality to match. She would give anyone the shirt off her back. Our baby saved two lives by donating her organs. Our baby may be in heaven, but part of her is here on this earth. And now we pause and say thank you to Lizzie for the gift of life. All 
right, guys, we are closing the books on episode 202 of The Gifted Life. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can register anytime as an organ, eye, and tissue donor at registerme.org. Yeah, this one was certainly one where my brain feels like it's exploding here. (laughs) I have decision fatigue just listening in. Lots of new information, no like joke. what's so, coming. Yeah. Special thanks to Dr. Srinivas for coming on and, and talking about what they're doing there at CareDX, all the innovation, all the technology that's that they're using, putting forth in using artificial intelligence to be able to better manage those and be better stewards of those gifts. Guys, we want you and your friends to learn with us, so spread the word. The best place to find us, The Gifted Life, is on our website, thegiftedlife.org. Listen there and find links to listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating. It really helps others find us. All right. We're talking about social media now. You can like our page on Facebook. We're the Gifted Life Podcast. You can also follow us on both Twitter and Instagram at Gifted Life Pod. Thanks for listening. Spread the word about the Gifted Life Podcast and go out and do something you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. Thanks, guys. This is a production of the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, or LOPA. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreaux, and Nala Schwab. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Carraway. Intern is Rebecca Ranham. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. Troy Perez.